Poetry, for Poetry's Sake, an inaugural lecture delivered on June 5, 1901, by A.C. Bradley, Professor of Poetry in the University of Oxford. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Poetry, for Poetry's Sake one who after twenty years is restored to the university where he was taught and first tried to teach and who has received at the hands of his alma mater an honour of which he never dreamed is tempted to speak both of himself and of her but i remember that you have come to listen to my thoughts about a great subject and not to my feelings about myself and of oxford who that holds this professorship could dare to speak when he recalls the exquisite verse in which one of his predecessors described her beauty and the prose in which he gently touched on her illusions and protested that they were as nothing when set against her age-long warfare with the philistine how again remembering him and others should i venture to praise my predecessors it would be pleasant to do so and even pleasanter to me and you if instead of lecturing i quoted to you some of their best passages but I could not do this for five years. Sooner or later, my own words would have to come, and the inevitable contrast. Not to sharpen it now, I will be silent concerning them also, and will only assure you that I do not forget them, or the greatness of the honour of succeeding them, or the responsibility which it entails. Since I left Oxford, one change has taken place in its educational system which may be thought to affect the professorship of poetry. A school of English language and literature has been founded, and has attracted a fair number of candidates. Naturally, I rejoice in this change, knowing from experience the value of these studies, and knowing also from experience, if I may speak boldly, how idle is that dream which flits about in Oxford and whispers that the mastering of Old English, on the basis of Teutonic phonology, and the conquest of the worlds opened by Chaucer and Shakespeare, and Swift and Burke, and twenty more, is a business too slight and a discipline not severe enough for undergraduates i should be glad to lighten their labours and if it should seem advisable to those who can judge i propose to give in one of the three terms of the year in addition to my statutory lecture a few others intended specially for those who are reading for the school of english i wish i could do more but i resigned my chair in glasgow with a view to work of another kind and I could not have parted from my students there, to whom I am bound by ties of the most grateful affection, in order to take up similar duties, even in the University of Oxford. The charming poem with which my predecessor opened his literary career, and his admirable contributions to poetical history and criticism, proved that it would have been easy to him to devote his lectures to the interpretation of particular poets and poems. I believe, however, that he thought it better to confine himself chiefly to questions in poetics and aesthetics i can well understand his choice but partly because he made it i propose to make another and to discuss these questions if at all only as they are illustrated by particular writers and works still in an inaugural lecture it is customary to take some wider subject and so i fear you may have to-day to lament the truth of addison's remark there is nothing in nature so irksome as general discourses especially when they turn chiefly upon words mine turns entirely upon words the words poetry for poetry's sake recall the famous phrase art for art 
it is far from my purpose to examine the possible meanings of that phrase or all the questions it involves i propose to state briefly what i understand by poetry for poetry's sake and then after guarding against one or two misapprehensions of the formula to consider more fully a single problem connected with it and i must premise without attempting to justify them certain explanations we are to consider poetry in its essence and apart from the flaws which in most poems accompany their poetry we are to include in the idea of poetry the metrical form and not to regard this as a mere accident or a mere vehicle and finally poetry being poems we are to think of a poem as it actually exists and without aiming here at accuracy we may say that an actual poem is the succession of experiences sounds images thoughts emotions through which we pass when we are reading as poetically as we can of course this imaginative experience if i may use the phrase for brevity differs with every reader and every time of reading a poem exists in innumerable degrees but that insurmountable fact lies in the nature of things and does not concern us now what then does the formula poetry for poetry's sake tell us about this experience it says as i understand it these things first this experience is an end in itself is worth having on its own account has an intrinsic value next its poetic value is this intrinsic worth alone poetry may have also an ulterior value as a means to culture or religion because it conveys instruction or softens the passions or furthers a good cause because it brings the poet fame or money or a quiet conscience so much the better let it be valued for these reasons too but its ulterior worth neither is nor can directly determine its poetic work as a satisfying imaginative experience and this is to be judged entirely from within and to these two positions the formula would add though not of necessity a third the consideration of ulterior ends whether by the poet in the act of composing or by the reader in the act of experiencing tends to lower poetic value it does so because it tends to change the nature of poetry by taking it out of its own atmosphere for its nature is to be not a part nor yet a copy of the real world as we commonly understand that phrase but to be a world by itself independent complete autonomous and to possess it fully you must enter that world conform to its laws and ignore for the time the beliefs aims and particular conditions which belong to you in the other world of reality of the more serious apprehensions to which these statements may give rise i will glance only at one or two the offensive consequences often drawn from the formula art for art will be found to attach not to the doctrine that art is an end in itself but to the doctrine that art is the whole or supreme end of human life and as this latter doctrine which seems to me absurd is in any case quite different from the former its consequences fall outside my subject the formula poetry is an end in itself has nothing to say on the many questions of moral judgment which arise from the fact that poetry has its place in a many-sided life for anything it says the intrinsic value of poetry might be so small and its ulterior effects so mischievous that it had better not exist the formula only tells us that we must not place in antithesis poetry and human good for poetry is one kind of human good and that we must not determine the intrinsic value of this kind of good by direct reference to another if we do we shall find ourselves maintaining what we did not expect 
if poetic value lies in the stimulation of religious feelings lead kindly light is no better a poem than many a tasteless version of a psalm if in the excitement of patriotism why is scots what hay superior to we don't want to fight if in the mitigation of the passions the odes of sappho will win but little praise if in instruction armstrong's art of preserving health should win much again our formula may be accused of cutting poetry away from its connection with life and this accusation raises so huge a problem that i must ask leave to be dogmatic as well as brief there is plenty of connection between life and poetry but it is so to say a connection underground the two may be called different forms of the same thing one of them having in the usual sense reality but seldom fully satisfying imagination while the other offers something which satisfies imagination but has not in the usual sense full reality they are parallel developments which nowhere meet or if i may use incorrectly a word which will be useful later they are analogues hence we understand one by help of the other and even in a sense care for one because of the other and hence also poetry neither is life nor strictly speaking a copy of it they differ not only because one has more mass and the other a more perfect shape but they have different kinds of existence the one touches us as beings occupying a given position in space and time and having feelings desires and purposes due to that position it appeals to imagination but appeals to much besides what meets us in poetry has not a position in the same series of time and space or if it has or had such a position is taken apart from much that belonged to it there and therefore it makes no direct appeal to those feelings desires or purposes but speaks only to contemplative imagination imagination the reverse of empty or emotionless imagination saturated with the results of real experience but still contemplative thus no doubt one main reason why poetry has poetic value for us is that it presents to us in its own way something which we meet in another form in nature or life and yet the test of its poetic value lies simply in the question whether it satisfies our imagination the rest of us our knowledge or conscience for example judging it only so far as they appear transmuted in our imagination so also shakespeare's knowledge or his moral insight milton's greatness of soul shelley's hate of hate and love of love and that desire to help men by his poetry which influenced this poet or that not surely in the process of composition but in hours of meditation all these have as such no poetical worth they have that worth only when passing through the unity of the poet's being they reappear as qualities of imagination and then are indeed mighty powers in the world of poetry i come to a third misapprehension and so to my main subject this formula it is said empties poetry of its meaning it is really a doctrine of form for form's sake it matters not what a poet says so long as he says the thing well the what is poetically indifferent it is the how that counts matter subject content substance determines nothing there is no subject with which poetry may not deal the form the treatment is everything nay more not only is the matter indifferent but it is the secret of art to eradicate the matter by means of the form phrases and statements like these meet us everywhere in current criticism of literature and the other arts 
they are the stock in trade of writers who understand of them little more than the fact that somehow or other they are not bourgeois but we find them also seriously used by writers whom we must respect whether they are anonymous or not something like one or another of them might be quoted for example from professor saintsbury the late r a m stevenson schiller goethe himself and they are the watchwords of a school in the one country where aesthetics has flourished they come as a rule from men who either practice one of the arts or from study of it are interested in its methods the general reader a being so general that i may say what i will of him is outraged by them he feels that he is being robbed of almost all that he cares for in a work of art you are asking me he says to look at the dresden madonna as if it were a persian rug you are telling me that the poetic value of hamlet lies solely in its style and versification and that my interest in the man and his fate is only an intellectual or moral interest you pretend that if i want to enjoy the poetry of crossing the bar i must not mind what tennyson says there but must consider solely how he says it but in that case i can care no more for a poem than i do for a set of nonsense verses and i do not believe that the authors of hamlet and crossing the bar regarded their poems thus these antitheses of subject matter substance on the one side form treatment handling on the other are the field through which i especially want in this lecture to indicate a way it is a field of battle and the battle is waged for no trivial cause but the cries of the combatants are terribly ambiguous those phrases of the so-called formalist may each mean five or six different things if they mean one they seem to me chiefly true taken as the general reader not unnaturally takes them they seem to me false and mischievous it would be absurd to pretend that i can end in a few minutes a controversy which concerns the ultimate nature of art and leads perhaps to problems not yet soluble but we can at least draw some plain distinctions which in this controversy are too often confused in the first place then let us take subject in one particular sense let us understand by it that which we have in view when looking at the title of a poem we say that the poet has chosen this or that for his subject the subject in this sense so far as i can discover is generally something real or imaginary as it exists in the mind of fairly cultivated people the subject of paradise lost would be the story of the fall as that story exists in the general imagination of a bible-reading people the subject of shelley's stanzas to a skylark would be the ideas which arise in the mind of an educated person when without knowing the poem he hears the word skylark if the title of a poem conveys little or nothing to us the subject appears to be either what we should gather by investigating the title in a dictionary or other book of the kind or else such a brief suggestion as might be offered by a person who had read the poem and who said for example that the subject of the ancient mariner was a sailor who killed an albatross and suffered for his deed now the subject in this sense and i intend to use this word in no other is not as such inside the poem but outside it the content of the stanzas to a skylark are not the ideas suggested by the word skylark to the average man they belong to shelley just as much as the language does the subject therefore is not the matter of the poem at all and its opposite is not the form of the poem but the whole poem the subject is one thing the poem matter and form alike another thing this being so it is surely obvious that the poetic value cannot lie in the subject 
but lies entirely in its opposite, the poem. How can the subject determine the value when on one and the same subject poems may be written of all degrees of merit and demerit, or when a perfect poem may be composed on a subject so slight as a pet sparrow, and, if Macaulay may be trusted, a nearly worthless poem on a subject so stupendous as the omnipresence of the deity? The formalist is here perfectly right, nor is he insisting on something unimportant. He is contending against our tendency to take the work of art as a mere copy or reminder of something already in our heads, or at the best as a suggestion of some idea as little removed as possible from the familiar. The sightseer who promenades a picture gallery, remarking that this portrait is so like his cousin, or that landscape the very image of his birthplace, or who, after satisfying himself that one picture is about Elijah, passes on rejoicing to discover the subject, and nothing but the subject, of the next. What is he but an extreme example of this tendency? Well, but the very same tendency vitiates much of our criticism, much criticism of Shakespeare, for example, which, with all its cleverness and partial truth, still shows that the critic never passed from his own mind into Shakespeare's, and it may still be traced even in so fine a critic as Coleridge, as when he dwarfs the sublime struggle of Hamlet into the image of his own unhappy weakness. Hazlitt by no means escaped its influence. Only the third of that great trio, Lamb, appears almost always to have rendered the conception of the composer. Again, it is surely true that we cannot determine beforehand what subjects are fit for art, or name any subject on which a good poem might not possibly be written. To divide subjects into two groups, the beautiful or elevating, and the ugly or vicious, and to judge poems according as their subjects belong to one of these groups or the other, is to fall into the same pit, to confuse with our preconceptions the meaning of the poet. What the thing is in the poem he is to be judged by, not by the thing as it was before he touched it. And how can we venture to say beforehand that he cannot make a true poem out of something which to us was merely alluring, or dull, or revolting? The question whether, having done so, he ought to publish his poem, whether the thing in the poet's work will not be still confused by the incompetent Puritan, or the incompetent sensualist, with the thing in his mind, does not touch this point. It is a further question, one of ethics, not of art. No doubt the upholders of art for art's sake will generally be in favor of the courageous course, of refusing to sacrifice the better or stronger part of the public to the weaker or worse, but their maxim in no way binds them to this view. Dante Rossetti suppressed one of the best of his sonnets, a sonnet chosen for admiration by Tennyson, himself extremely sensitive about the moral effect of poetry, suppressed it, I believe, because it was called fleshly. One may regret Rossetti's judgment, and at the same time admire his scrupulousness. But in any case he judged in his capacity of citizen, not in his capacity of artist. So far, then, the formalist appears to be right. But he goes too far, I think, if he maintains that the subject is indifferent, and that all subjects are the same to poetry. And he does not prove his point by observing that a good poem might be written on a pin's head, and a bad one on the fall of man. That shows that the subject settles nothing, but not that it counts for nothing. The fall of man is really a more favorable subject than a pin's head. The fall of man, that is to say, offers opportunities of poetic effects wider in range and more penetrating in appeal. And the truth is that such a subject, 
as it exists in the general imagination has some aesthetic value before the poet touches it it is as you may choose to call it an inchoate poem or the debris of a poem it is not an abstract idea or a bare isolated fact but an assemblage of figures scenes actions and events which already appeal to emotional imagination and it is already in some degree organized and formed in spite of this a bad poet would make a bad poem on it but then we should say he was unworthy of the subject and we should not say this if he wrote a bad poem on a pin's head conversely a good poem on a pin's head would almost certainly revolutionize its subject far more than a good poem on the fall of man it might transform its subject so completely that we should say the subject may be a pin's head but the substance of the poem has very little to do with it this brings us to another and different antithesis those figures scenes events that form part of the subject called the fall of man are not the substance of paradise lost but in paradise lost there are figures scenes and events resembling them in some degree these with much more of the same kind may be described as its substance and may then be contrasted with the measured language of the poem which will be called its form subject is the opposite not of form but of the whole poem substance is within the poem and its opposite form is also within the poem i'm not criticizing this antithesis at present but evidently it is quite different from the other it is practically the distinction used in the old-fashioned criticism of epic and drama and it flows down not unsullied from aristotle addison for example in examining paradise lost considers in order the fable the characters the sentiments these will be the substance then he considers the language that is the style and numbers this will be the form in like manner the substance or meaning of a lyric may be distinguished from the form now i believe it will be found that a large part of the controversy we are dealing with arises from a confusion between these two distinctions of substance and form and of subject and poem the extreme formalist lays his whole weight on the form because he thinks its opposite is the mere subject the general reader is angry but makes the same mistake and gives the subject praises that rightly belong to the substance i will read an example of what i mean i can only explain the following words of a good critic by supposing for the moment that he has fallen into this confusion the mere matter of all poetry to wit the appearances of nature and the thoughts and feelings of men being unalterable it follows that the difference between poet and poet will depend upon the manner of each in applying language meter rhyme cadence and what not to this invariable material what has become here of the substance of paradise lost the story scenery characters sentiments as they are in the poem they have vanished clean away nothing is left but the form on one side and on the other not even the subject but a supposed invariable material the appearances of nature and the thoughts and feelings of men is it surprising that the whole value should then be found in the form so far we have assumed that this antithesis of substance and form is valid and that it always has one meaning in reality it has several but we will leave it in its present shape and pass to the question of its validity and this question we are compelled to raise because we have to deal with the two contentions that the poetic value lies wholly or mainly in the substance and that it lies wholly or mainly in the form now these contentions whether false or true 
may seem at least to be clear but we shall find i think that they are both of them false or both of them nonsense false if they concern anything outside the poem nonsense if they apply to something in it for what do they evidently imply they imply that there are in a poem two parts factors or components a substance and a form and that you can conceive them distinctly and separately so that when you are speaking of the one you are not speaking of the other otherwise how can you ask the question in which of them does the value lie but really in a poem apart from defects there are no such factors or components and therefore it is strictly nonsense to ask in which of them the value lies and on the other hand if the substance and the form referred to are not in the poem then both the contentions are false for its poetic value lies in itself what i mean is neither new nor mysterious and it will be clear i believe to any one who reads poetry poetically and who closely examines his experience when you are reading a poem i would ask not analyzing it and much less criticizing it but allowing it as it proceeds to make its full impression on you through the exertion of your recreating imagination do you then apprehend and enjoy as one thing a certain meaning or substance and as another thing certain articulate sounds and do you somehow compound these two surely you do not any more than you apprehend a part when you see someone smile those lines in the face which express a feeling and the feeling that the lines express just as there the lines and their meaning are to you one thing not two so in poetry the meaning and the sounds are one there is if i may put it so a resonant meaning or a meaning resonance if you read the line the sun is warm the sky is clear you do not experience separately the image of a warm sun and a clear sky on the one side and certain unintelligible rhythmical sounds on the other nor yet do you experience them together side by side but you experience the one in the other and in like manner when you are really reading hamlet the action and the characters are not something which you conceive apart from the words you apprehend them from point to point in the words afterwards no doubt when you are out of the poetic experience but remember it you may by analysis decompose this unity and attend to a substance more or less isolated and a form more or less isolated but these are things in your analytical head not in the poem which is poetic experience and if you want to have the poem again you cannot find it by adding together these two products of decomposition you can only find it by passing back into poetic experience and then what you have again is no aggregate of factors it is a unity in which you can no more separate a substance and a form than you can separate living blood and the life in the blood this unity has if you like various aspects or sides but they are not factors or parts if you try to examine one you will find it is also the other call them substance and form if you please but these are not the reciprocally exclusive substance and form to which the two contentions must refer they do not agree for they are not apart they are one thing from different points of view and in this sense identical and this identity of content and form you will say is no accident it is of the essence of poetry in so far as it is poetry and of all art in so far as it is art just as there is in music not sound on one side and a meaning on the other but expressive sound and if you ask what is the meaning you can only answer by pointing to the sounds just as in painting there is not a meaning plus paint but a meaning in paint or significant paint 
and no man can really express the meaning in any other way than in paint and in this paint so in a poem the true content and the true form neither exists nor can be imagined apart when then you are asked whether the value of a poem lies in substance got by decomposing the poem and present as such only in reflective analysis or in a form arrived at and existing in the same way you will answer it lies neither in one nor in the other nor in any addition of them but in the poem where they are not and when you are told that you are talking a priori metaphysics you will not mind metaphysics does not mean anything it is only a term of abuse applied to the effort to look at facts instead of repeating a priori fictions we have then first an antithesis of subject and poem this is clear and valid and the question in which of them does the value lie is intelligible and its answer is in the poem we have next a distinction of substance and form if the substance means ideas images and the like taken alone and the form means the measured language taken by itself this is a possible distinction but it is a distinction of things not in the poem and the value lies in neither of them if substance and form mean anything in the poem then each is involved in the other and the question in which of them the value lies has no sense no doubt you may say speaking loosely and perilously that in this poet or poem the aspect of substance is the more noticeable and in that the aspect of form and you may pursue interesting discussions on this basis but no principle or ultimate question of value is touched by them and apart from that question of course i am not denying the usefulness and necessity of the distinction we cannot dispense with it to consider separately the action or the characters of a play and separately its style or versification is both legitimate and valuable so long as we remember what we are doing but the true critic in speaking of these apart never really thinks of them apart the whole the poetic experience of which they are but aspects is always in his mind and he is always aiming at a richer truer more intense repetition of that experience on the other hand when the question of principle of poetic value is raised these aspects must fall apart into components separately conceivable and then there arises two heresies equally false that the value lies in one of two things both of which are outside the poem where its value cannot lie on the heresy of the separate substance a few additional words will suffice this heresy is seldom formulated but perhaps some unconscious holder of it may object surely the action and characters of hamlet are in the play and surely i can retain these though i have forgotten all the words i admit that i do not possess the whole poem but i possess a part and the most important part and i would answer if we are not concerned with any question of principle i accept all that you say except the last words which do raise such a question speaking loosely i agree that the action and characters as you perhaps conceive them together with a great deal more are in the poem even then however you must not claim to possess all of this kind that is in the poem for in forgetting the words you must have lost innumerable details of the action and the characters and when the question of value is raised i must insist that the action and characters as you conceive them are not in hamlet at all if they are point them out you cannot do it what you find at any moment of that succession of experiences called hamlet is words in these words to speak loosely again 
the action and characters more of them than you can conceive apart are focused but your experience is not a combination of them as ideas on the one side with certain sounds on the other it is an experience of something in which the two are indissolubly fused if you deny this to be sure i can make no answer or can only answer that i have reason to believe that you cannot read poetically or else are misinterpreting your experience but if you do not deny this then you will admit that the action and characters of the poem as you separately imagine them are no part of it but a product of it in your reflective imagination a faint analogue of one aspect of it taken in detachment from the whole well i do not deny i would even insist that in the case of so long a poem as hamlet it may be necessary from time to time to interrupt the poetic experience in order to enrich it by forming such a product and dwelling on it nor in a wide sense of poetic do i question the poetic value of this product as you think of it apart from the poem it resembles our recollections of the heroes of history or legend who move about in our imaginations forms more real than living man and are worth much to us though we do not remember anything they said our ideas and images of the substance of a poem have this poetic value and more if they are at all adequate but they cannot determine the poetic value of a poem for not to speak of the competing claims of form nothing that is outside the poem can do that and they as such are outside it let us turn to the so-called form style and versification there is no such thing as mere form in poetry all form is expression style may have indeed a certain aesthetic worth impartial abstraction from the particular matter it conveys as in a well-built sentence you may take pleasure in the build almost apart from the meaning even then style is expressive presents to sense for example the order ease and rapidity with which ideas move in the writer's mind but it is not expressive of the meaning of that particular sentence and it is possible interrupting poetic experience to decompose it and abstract for comparatively separate consideration this nearly formed element of style but the aesthetic value of style so taken is not considerable you could not read with pleasure for an hour a composition which had no other merit and in poetic experience you never apprehend this value by itself the style is here expressive also of a particular meaning or rather is one aspect of that unity whose other aspect is meaning so that what you apprehend may be called indifferently an expressed meaning or a significant form perhaps on this point i may in oxford appeal to authority that of matthew arnold and walter pater the latter at any rate an authority whom the formalist will not despise what is the gist of pater's teaching about style if it is not that in the end the one virtue of style is truth or adequacy that the word phrase sentence should express perfectly the writer's perception feeling image or thought so that as we read a descriptive phrase of keats we exclaim that is the thing itself so that to quote arnold the words are symbols equivalent with the thing symbolized or in our technical language a form identical with its content hence in true poetry it is in strictness impossible to express the meaning in any but its own words or to change the words without changing the meaning a translation of such poetry is not really the old meaning in a fresh dress it is a new product something like the poem though if one chooses to say so 
more like it in the aspect of meaning than in the aspect of form no one who understands poetry it seems to me would dispute this were it not that falling away from his experience or misled by theory he takes the word meaning in a sense almost ludicrously inapplicable to poetry people say for instance steed and horse have the same meaning and in bad poetry they have but not in poetry that is poetry bring forth the horse the horse was brought in truth he was a noble steed says byron in mazeppa if the two words mean the same here transpose them bring forth the steed the steed was brought in truth he was a noble horse and ask again if they mean the same or let me take a line certainly very free from poetic diction to be or not to be that is the question you may say that this means the same as what is just now occupying my attention is the comparative disadvantages of continuing to live or putting an end to myself and for practical purposes the purpose for example of a coroner it does but as the second version altogether misrepresents the speaker at that moment of his existence while the first does represent him how can they for any but a practical or logical purpose be said to have the same sense hamlet was well able to unpack his heart with words but he will not unpack it with our paraphrases these considerations apply equally to versification if i take the famous line which describes how the souls of the dead stood waiting by the river imploring a passage from charon ulterioris amore and if i translate it and were stretching forth their hands in longing for the further bank the charm of the original has fled why has it fled partly but we have dealt with that because i have substituted for five words and those the words of virgil twelve words and those my own in some measure because i have turned into rhymeless prose a line of verse which as mere sound has unusual beauty but much more because in doing so i have also changed the meaning of virgil's line what that meaning is i cannot say virgil has said it but i can see this much that the translation conveys a far less vivid picture of the outstretched hands and of their remaining outstretched and a far less poignant sense of the distance of the shore and the longing of the souls and it does so partly because this picture and this sense are conveyed not only by the obvious meaning of the words but through the long-drawn sound of tendebantecue through the time occupied by the five syllables and therefore by the idea of ulterioris and though the identity of the long sound or in the penultimate syllables of ulterioris amore all this and much more apprehending not in this analytical fashion nor is added to the beauty of mere sound and to the obvious meaning but in unity with them and so as expressive of the poetic meaning of the whole it is always so in fine poetry the value of versification when it is indissolubly fused with meaning can hardly be exaggerated the gift for feeling it even more perhaps than the gift for feeling the value of diction is the specific gift for poetry as distinguished from other arts but versification taken as far as possible all by itself has a very different worth some aesthetic worth it has how much you may experience by reading poetry in any language of which you do not understand a syllable the pleasure is quite appreciable but it is not great 
nor in actual poetic experience do you meet with it as such at all for it is not added to the pleasure of the meaning when you read poetry that you do understand by some mystery the music is then the music of the meaning and the two are one however fond of versification you might be you would tire very soon of reading verses in chinese and before long of reading virgil and dante if you are ignorant of their languages but take the music as it is in the poem and there is a marvellous change now it gives a very echo to the seat where love is throned or carries far into your heart almost like the music itself the sound of old unhappy far-off things and battles long ago what then is to be said of the following sentence of the critic quoted before but when any one who knows what poetry is reads our noisy years seem moments in the being of the eternal silence he sees that quite independently of the meaning there is one note added to the articulate music of the world a note that will never leave off resounding till the eternal silence engulfs it i must think that the writer is deceiving himself for i could quite understand his enthusiasm if it were an enthusiasm for the music of the meaning but as for the music quite independently of the meaning so far as i can hear it thus and i doubt if any one who knows english can quite do so i find it gives some pleasure but only a trifling pleasure and indeed i venture to doubt whether considered as mere sound the words are at all exceptionally beautiful as virgil's line certainly is whatever may be the consequence i would back against them quite independently of the meaning this once famous stanza where is cupid's crimson motion billowy ecstasy of woe bear me straight meandering ocean where the stagnant torrents flow when poetry answers to its idea and is purely or almost purely poetic we find the identity of form and content and the degree of purity attained may be tested by the degree in which we feel it hopeless to convey the effect of a poem or passage in any form but its own where the notion of doing so is simply ludicrous you have quintessential poetry but a great part of even good poetry especially in long works is of a mixed nature and so we find in it no more than a partial agreement of a form and substance which remains to some extent this is so in many passages of shakespeare the greatest of poets when he chose but not always a conscientious poet passages where something was wanted for the sake of the plot but he did not care about it or was hurried the conception of the passage is then distinct from the execution and neither is inspired this is so also i think whenever we can truly speak of merely decorative effect we seem to perceive that the poet had a truth or fact philosophical agricultural social distinctly before him and then as we say clothed it in metrical and colored language most argumentative didactic or satiric poems are partly of this kind and in imaginative poems anything which is really a mere conceit is mere decoration we often deceive ourselves in this matter for what we call decoration has often a new and genuinely poetic content of its own but wherever there is mere decoration we judge the poetry to be not wholly poetic and so when wordsworth inveighed against poetic diction though he hurled his darts rather wildly what he was rightly aiming at was a phraseology not the living body of a new content but the mere worn-out body of an old one in pure poetry it is otherwise pure poetry 
is not the decoration of a preconceived and clearly defined matter it springs from the creative impulse of a vague imaginative mass pressing for development and definition if the poet already knew exactly what he meant to say why should he write the poem the poem would in fact already be written for only its completion can reveal even to him exactly what he wanted when he began and while he was at work he did not possess his meaning it possessed him it was not a fully formed soul asking for a body it was an inchoate soul in the inchoate body of perhaps two or three vague ideas and a few scattered phrases the growing of this body into its full stature and perfect shape was the same thing as the gradual self-definition of the meaning and this is the reason why such poems strike us as creations not manufacturers and have the magical effect which mere decoration cannot produce this is also the reason why if we insist on asking for the meaning of such a poem we can only be answered it means itself and so at last i may explain why i have troubled myself and you with what may seem an arid controversy about mere words it is not so these heresies which would make poetry a compound of two factors a matter common to it with the merest prose plus a poetic form as the heresy says a poetical substance plus a negligible form as the other says are not only untrue they are injurious to the dignity of poetry in an age already inclined to shrink from those higher realms where poetry touches religion and philosophy the formalist heresy encourages men to taste poetry as they would a fine wine which has indeed an aesthetic value but a small one and then the natural man finding an empty form hurls into it the matter of cheap pathos rancid sentiment vulgar humour bare lust ravenous vanity everything which in schiller's phrase the form should extirpate but which no mere form can extirpate and the other heresy which is indeed rather a practice than a creed encourages us in the habit so dear to us of putting our own thoughts or fancies into the place of the poet's creation what he meant by hamlet or the ode to a nightingale or apt vulgar we say is this or that which we knew already and so we lose what he had to tell us but he meant what he said and he said what he meant poetry in this matter is not as good critics of painting and music often affirm different from the other arts in all of them the content is one thing with the form what beethoven meant by his symphony or turner by his picture was not something which you can name but the picture and the symphony meaning they have but what meaning can be uttered in no language but their own? And we know this, though some strange delusion makes us think the meaning has less worth because we cannot put it into words. Well, it is just the same with poetry. But because poetry is words, we vainly fancy that some other words than its own will express its meaning, and they will do so no more, or, if you like to speak loosely, only a little more, than words will express the meaning of the Dresden Madonna something a little like it may be indeed express and we may find analogues of the meaning of poetry outside it which may help us to appropriate it the other arts the best ideas of philosophy or religion much that nature and life offer us or force upon us are akin to it but they are only akin nor is it the expression of them poetry does not present to imagination our highest knowledge or belief and much less our dreams and opinions but it content and form in unity 
embodies in own irreplaceable way something which embodies itself also in other irreplaceable ways such as philosophy or religion and just as each of these gives a satisfaction which the other cannot possibly give so we find in poetry which cannot satisfy the needs they meet that which by their natures they cannot afford us but we shall not find it fully if we look for something else and yet when all is said the question will still recur though now in quite another sense what does poetry mean this unique expression which cannot be replaced by another still seems to be trying to express something beyond itself and this we feel is also what the other arts and religion and philosophy are trying to express and that is what impels us to seek in vain to translate the one into the other about the best poetry and not only the best there floats an atmosphere of infinite suggestion the poet speaks to us of one thing but in this one thing there seems to lurk the secret of all he said what he meant but his meaning seems to beckon away beyond itself or rather to expand into something boundless which is only focused in it something also which we feel would satisfy not only the imagination but the whole of us that something within us and without which everywhere makes us seem to patch up fragments of a dream part of which comes true and part beats and trembles in the heart those who are susceptible to this effect of poetry find it not only perhaps not most in the ideals which she has sometimes described but in a child song by christina rossetti about a mere crown of wind flowers and in tragedies like lear where the sun seems to have set for ever and it pierces them no less in shelley's hopeless lament o world o life o time than in the rapturous ecstasy of his life of life this all-embracing perfection cannot be expressed in poetic words or words of any kind nor yet in music or in color but the suggestion of it is in much poetry if not at all and poetry has in this suggestion this meaning a great part of its value we do it wrong and we defeat our own purposes when we try to bend it to them we do it wrong being so majestical to offer it the show of violence for it is as the air invulnerable and our vain blows malicious mockery it is a spirit it comes we know not whence it will not speak at our bidding nor answer in our language it is not our servant it is our master End of Poetry for Poetry's Sake by A. C. Bradley Read by Marianne Spiegel